0: What's up guys, it's CG Kids. So in this podcast episode, we have Chris Shanks. He had an intense addiction to heroin and crystal meth. He's been sober for 11 years. He's going to share his experience with the addiction, the effects of the substance had on him. He goes into what caused him to get sober, how he's able to stay sober today, and how he works with others through mindfulness as a licensed chemical dependency counselor in Texas. He can be found at shankscounseling.com. So, um, so you you tried meth and heroin for the first time. Um, I'm just curious, wh-
1: which of those two did you get wrapped up into first? I got wrapped up into meth, you know, back in back in junior high. Um, but and it was it was different. I was they were they were amphetamine pills we would take. But I got into uh, to smoking meth off of foil and snorting it. We called it crank back then, and you know, and I that was. Uh, that was pretty pretty much stimulants were my my interest, and then um, then I got turned on to uh, to heroin, to snorting heroin. Forget what year it was. Uh, I, I do I do remember one of the the uh, one of the first few times I did a rail of heroin. I, I I looked up and and all the guys around me because they were musicians were all kind of panicking, and um, and in walks uh, Dimebag and Vinny from Pantera. And nobody wanted them to know there was hard drugs going on in that in that apartment. <laughs> so that was that was one of my my early memories because I was a, that was a you know a, a deal killer in the local you know rock and roll community back then. So yeah, I, it was one of my memories. But I was hanging around those kind of people and, and uh, the fast lane because I was you know I really couldn't deal with the emotional. Um, situation going on with losing my three kids and my wife and uh, you know and I, I knew how to use drugs and so I really took back to the took to that and um, you know and I tried to piece it together for years trying to to hold down a living uh, retouching and working for ad agencies and you know my life would go up and down I would I would uh, you know bottom out and and get clean for a bit and get the job the car the girl and then everything would fall back apart uh, pretty quick you know
0: yeah yeah z- definitely uh, I relate a lot um so like the effects of uh meth the first time you did it like what what did it do for you like what pulled you into the addiction um you know but, is, is yeah. descriptive as you can be about with the effects
1: okay. sure sure the effects of meth the the very first time that I did meth was I was in junior high and they were called there were these little pills this uh, th- this friend of mine um, was getting from his uncle and he was a trucker and, uh, and they were three dollars and they were uh, called RJS one thousands They call them black mollies the first time I took it now first of all I was a I was a very hyper child I was um, the class clown I sat in front. of uh, they would put my desk up in front of the teachers, so my back was to all the the students in every class because I really couldn't pay attention and I was what they call you know hyper or they call now ADHD or something like that. Um, the very first time I took it, two different teachers commented on how wonderful my behavior was, and and you know and I don't even know if I could understand the word irony or ironic, but I was like wow. I'm on the worst drug I've ever taken, and I'm finally getting complimented by adults. You know, I was like, this is <laughs> ironic. <laughs> you know, this is just crazy. Yeah, so I remember having that epiphany, you know. And then, you know, crank was, was something a little bit different, you know, uh, because crank was was a lot less intense than uh, what we have today when they, fir- when they started cleaning it up and calling it ice. You know, it's m- much much higher in milligrams, so, you know, the effect of it was, uh, you know, it was euphoric, it, it uh, gave me a lot of energy, I was able to work longer, I uh, felt like Superman, you know, it's incredibly seductive in the early days, really, you know, I was being all I could be, you know, um, yeah, I felt wonderful, I was, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't specifically remember, you know, because when, when I started doing drugs, I, I never, honestly, I never stopped, you know, I was, always on something. And that's why uh, memory is kind of hard when I go back into those days. I remember some of the major spots the you know, uh, investigations or arrest or overdose or deaths or things like that. I remember the, you know, the the movie highlight scenes. But, uh, you know, the day to day was, uh, you know, in the very beginning, I do remember this in the very beginning when I would come off of meth. Uh, before I was involved in trafficking or, or, you know, or new dealers or things like that, I uh, I would come down and be out of meth, uh, which I, I later cured by never coming down. But it was, the fatigue was unbelievable. You know, it was like you had been doing um, cardio, you know, for 48, 72 hours, and then you're just exhausted. And, you know, and after, after a while, I'm sure after a year or so of that, uh, it, that kind of faded away that that crashing sensation but yeah it was really intense the crash uh you know because the high was more intense and so the crash was just devastating in the early days
0: yeah you said that there were like some highlights that you remember from your whole like drug usage experience sure. um what what are some of those that stand out
1: oh lord uh, well, yeah a lot of <laughs> there was uh you know, there was there was several times there was overdoses uh, nearby, but I I could talk all night about the times I've uh, looked out the curtains and seen the police. Uh, you know, gathering around. I've uh, you know to uh, I've I've seen them leaning over their cars. Uh, you know, I've seen I've hallucinated that, but then uh, I've seen it for real when they when they bust down the door. Um, yeah, there was there's been several times. Um, there was a time, I'll just recall a story, there was a time where a friend of mine, I was going over to pick up a friend of mine to take her to court, uh, her name was Lori, she's since deceased, but uh, Lori was a sweet girl, cute girl, and uh, I went over to my friend's townhouse in downtown Dallas, right when they were developing downtown Dallas, and went to go in and pick her up, and uh, and I brought her a, a gram of heroin or so, uh, and uh, and I was waiting for her. And I think she had decided she wasn't going to go to court. And so we sat around and her boyfriend, who was a good friend of mine, was at work. And I guess we were getting high or something. I don't know what was going on. But um, in, in not too long, there was this pounding on the door. And it was the type of pounding that makes you duck for cover, not wonder who's there. And, uh, and so we, we, we ducked for cover. And then uh, and we creeped upstairs real slowly, we looked out, and we saw um, some of the sheriff's department, and we saw one of the guys climbing up the trellis um, coming over, and so we creeped down, and I remember calling uh, my friend on the phone, telling him what's happening, you know, and um, and Lori had been, Lori had had a, a, um, an issue with suicide uh, a few times before this, eventually that's what took her life, but uh, I looked across, and she was across the room, and she was crouched down. And she was, uh, she had pulled up, I guess she had pulled up while I was on the phone, uh, probably the entire gram because the entire syringe was black and she was looking for a vein and I knew exactly what she was doing. And, you know, she was going to offer herself right there. She didn't want to go to, to, uh, to prison. And, uh, something about me right there. I knew they were outside and we were in this hush, 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 you know, crouching down where we couldn't be seen. And, um, I just jumped up and screamed Lori you know and I jumped over there and pulled that syringe as soon as I did that you you could hear the door they, they were screaming they knew we were in there the door got smashed in and uh, and and they were screaming and all I remember is laying face down on that bed and they grabbed me by the ankles and raked me across the wrought iron uh, bed frame um, yeah and yeah I sat down in that house for probably two or three hours as they they pulled out the air conditioning vents and went through everything they found. My friend was uh, was dealing quite a large amount of narcotics. And once they found that in the uh, the closet, um, it was game on. They were they were calling all the, the cops from around the end, and the investigators taking pictures. So they kept me handcuffed down on the on the floor. And, you know, for sure, I'm going to go to, to prison and I do remember this one thing where they, they picked up my bag and they, they asked me real quick. They said, is this yours? And I had a, you know, one of those moments where you have a thousand thoughts. Do you say yes? Do you say no? <laughs> do you say, you know, cause I couldn't remember what was in it. And, uh, and you know, I think I said yes. And, and there was, a, it was just some marijuana. And I, I guess my the, my other drugs weren't in that bag at the time. Um, so, you know, I guess they didn't hold that against me because actually they, they uncuffed me. They didn't make me say anything because they had demolished the door and they were ready to leave a few hours later Um, they had to leave somebody there in charge of the house they weren't allowed to just leave that house there and so they left me there you know I guess instead of booking me on the the marijuana because I remember there was pot and uh, yeah and yeah that's that's one of those that's pretty intense it's pretty intense. The crazy part is, is we used to put food coloring in the GHB, and I had a full Gatorade uh, thing full of GHB in the fridge. And the only way I could, y- you could tell it was GHB, is because sometimes those things would spill, and so I had some black. What do you call it, electrical tape around the top? But it looked like mango. You know, a big thing of mango orange uh, uh, Gatorade. But so they left that. Um, and then I, I I piled around, found steroids and things on the ground. Uh, enough stuff that I could uh, go out and sell and, and uh, <clears throat> try to uh, to put money on her books. And that's what I did. And uh, it became a big fiasco because a, a lot of people thought I was working for the police. You know, all the people skits out and think you must have cut a deal or something like that. And, and that that happened to me quite a bit uh, throughout the years. There was I was involved in a lot of uh, a lot of drug bust. You know, until I was involved in my own. But yeah. I, I can recall quite a few, some that made the headlines in, in Dallas,
0: yeah. Wow, yeah. Um, so you were, you were talking earlier about experiencing hallucinations from meth psychosis. Sure. But uh, typically, were the, these hallucinations, what was the experience of going through that, and, like, did you think that what you were seeing was real?
1: Yeah, yeah. So you know, the meth psychosis uh, is different. I can think of some that were cocaine psychosis that were incredibly real. Um, Just just after you would like not you would see the film projector of your you know where your eyes look like they're 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 blinking like a film projector just right prior to to stroke you would you would get and then you would drop into hallucinations. But the the ones that were were different about meth is that they. They seemed real, and they never seemed to go away. Like bugs coming out of my skin. I remember being at the. Uh, oh wow, there's some embarrassing moments. I was at a. I was explaining to an emergency room doctor. Uh, they sent me to the doctor uh, from work, and I was explaining to the emergency room doctor, showing them all these little black dots in the soles of my shoes, how the bugs were coming out of the soles of my feet. You know, and I was I, I was managing a. Uh, you know, a pre-press company in downtown Fort Worth at the time, you know, I was still functioning and could still pull off a lot of stuff, but, but I was whack in the head. And in later years, I started seeing them come out of my skin. And so I became what's classically known as a, a face picker, you know, and, and uh, just to the point where I would use these colored bulbs, kind of like the ones I have behind me um, in the bathroom, just so I could see the toilet. And I, and I really couldn't, you know, get lost in that mirror
0: uh some yeah. sc- that's some scary stuff um yeah. what kind of uh physical toll did this drug like take on you over time like how much were you, were you using and after time like i imagine it would take quite a toll on your your physical appearance and health
1: yeah yeah if you see the my you know i have a uh a picture that i put on my my facebook site on my uh a few days ago as my uh Eleventh anniversary of being clean and sober, and I put a picture up, and I was five months sober. And I looked about eighty years old. Um, uh, you know, it. I never really because I I had learned to uh, learn to broker deals between large drug dealers and between people that made GHB or people that were selling massive amounts. Right about the time the cartels were coming in with the meth in Dallas and this is right around 2000 to 2001 or two and 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 so I had a I, I knew all the right people and you know as far as a junkie was concerned and um so I I didn't really have a hard time running out of meth and so you know what kind of toll did it take um only only the teeth you see right now are real I've spent eight thousand dollars so you don't vomit when you look at my front teeth um you know all my back teeth are gone um you know, it uh, many times. Well, one time in particular, I, I remember being in, uh, in what's it, uh, Baylor Hospital off gas, and I my lips turned blue. You know, from uh, from one of those spider bites, uh, so called things, were actually staph infections, and I had one so large on my leg that I was, I was suffering from sepsis. They said I was going to be dead pretty soon, but just to give you an idea of what what it was like, I'm not sure. It must have been maybe 2005 or six. Um, We went in there, and uh, you know, and they they couldn't even find an IV. All the doctors came down. You know, they couldn't find a vein, so they had to bring a uh, you know those little portable uh, little scanners down from the operating room and run a a pick line through my neck um, to get an IV in me. And, uh, and I was in the hospital for two or three days, you know, because the infections that I had like that at that time were so bad. And I do remember, you know, uh, this is right when video was new on phones. Uh, you had a really high end video because my, my friend was videotaping me saying he, he can't believe this is happening because I was drawing up a shot of heroin and screwing it into the pick line to, to, you know, to, to shoot it. I was, uh, yeah, uh, I was a mess. Yeah infections basically and infections and, and the toll it took on my, uh, my mentality. And, uh, but other than that, I can't, you know, I, I can't think of lasting ones. You know, it's been, it's been a while and I feel like, I've, I hope I feel like, I've rec- I hope I feel that's funny. I feel like I've recovered. I hope I've recovered internally from, from the damages of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really intense that you, um, you went pretty, pretty far down, uh, with the addiction. Um, did uh, I, I'm just curious? Did you have uh, people that were, you know, basically not not addicted to anything in your life that ever looked at you and just were kind of like pushing you to get help or anything like that? I'm just wondering what that experience yeah. would be like to be uh, that far gone and, and see somebody and have them try to help you and what your kind of response to that was. Sure, sure.
1: So I, you know, uh, I it's crazy when you're when you're in that world. I, I was I, I was an addict. I'm okay with being an addict, you know. Now what do we do? How are we going to earn money? How are we going to hit licks? Or how are we going to do? What are we going to do? Right? And so I, I wasn't the of the variety like that. I would sell to where I would just completely self destruct. I would try to maintain. So I feel like you know because I, I didn't want to get caught by police. I, I needed to you know to uh, to make phone calls, answer phone calls, and, and make deliveries and things like that. So I had to function, and you know and after years and years of doing uh, narcotics like that, um, th- they lose some of their side effects. You know uh, Medicine kind of loses its uh, side effects. And so I was able to sleep. I, I slept probably every third day, for, you know, and that went on for years and years and years, uh, but I'd use GHB to sleep. And so the reason I say that is, and veered off your question, uh, I-, I was able to maintain in front of people for a while. You know, it was uh, there was like I, I worked for a, uh, a large rug manufacturer doing uh, freelance stuff uh, with uh, digital imaging for their rugs in Dallas. And the lady that hired me, she knew that I had a problem and she's a real sweet lady. And But, you know, I was saving them so much money and, and you know, and I was really good at what I did that they kind of looked the other way. My brother was in my life from time to time and, and they would encourage me to get help. But pretty much, you know, my life centered around using and around selling. So I was pretty much around addicts. And as all addicts know, you kind of feel like you're the one that has it together because you can always point to that dude over there <laughs> that has just screwed up everything and steals from everybody. And then you know, and uh, and I did my best to avoid those type of people when I was using.
0: Yeah. So like uh, your lifestyle, you were talking about selling, and you uh, take us through a, a, like what a standard day in addiction looked like for you. Uh, from getting up to, like, throughout the
1: Yeah, day. so I, I would say a standard day, watch the sunset at least three times, you know. <laughs> and then That would be a standard day. Um, you know, I, I, I would always, uh, I, I lived out of a backpack at times, would always uh, seem to have, uh, even when I didn't have a home, or an apartment, or a house, or something. I would always have stuff in somebody's garage, and and you know. And then I had a, a dear friend of mine, that was like a brother, and and I had turned him on to some connections, and he was really selling up in the in the pretty high. You know, a lot of these people are still uh, alive and doing what they're doing, so I don't want to be too specific. But he was still he was still running and gunning, and so I could always hook up with him. And you know, back then we I think you had like three hundred names on your Nokia phone and. I do remember that I would put stars in front of the names of people, and everybody's name had two names. It would be like uh, Mary's John or Bob's John, you know, because I'd have to know how I knew you. And then if I put a star in front of your name, that meant not to answer the phone. But I was never really uh, rude or or, or not nice to people. I would just politely avoid them to try to avoid going to jail or being set up. So days, you know, days uh, were just involved around, uh, you know, trying to find uh, you know find a spot the spots in Dallas uh, to avoid where all those motels around you know outside the city limits or around the surrounding uh, avoid those because I'd been you know had the door kicked in numerous times on those run from police on those and things so we'd learned to uh, to stay in the business district you know and spend a couple hundred bucks a night uh, which was easily you know recouped and uh, so stay around there and uh, and just plot out ways uh, to have rooms near the, you know, where people could walk right in and go to the stairwell and not walk through the lobby after, you know, 10 or 11 at night. You know, just always trying to figure out, figuring out how to meet people at Whataburger or McDonald's and pass off five envelopes in five minutes, you know, just to uh, make things happen without without drawing attention to yourself. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So, well, the moment that you—how long have you been sober now for?
1: Uh, Eleven years uh, on the seventh.
0: Wow, congrats! Um, what What was the moment? Um, was it a, a particular moment? Like, what was the, the wh- where well, yeah, you made the decision? A- what led up to that?
1: yeah yeah the particular moment was uh you can read the police report on my facebook page <laughs> the particular moment was a car horn went off and all these civilians turned around with these massive guns uh, you know in this in this gas station and uh and uh started pointing them at me and my partner uh and, and thank god his hand went on the steering column to put that thing in reverse and Had he done that, I I am assured that we would have both been shot. The same task force shot a kid about a month or two later. uh, Cops said he was turning on his flashlight and shot him right in the chest. Same cops, right across the street. So it was uh, was the Plano Narcotic Task Force. Uh, So for some reason, uh, that was in two thousand. That was April seventh of two thousand nine. So you know, and uh, I had been set up. uh, A a lady that um, we were selling. Uh, narcotics too uh had gotten caught and they they had threatened her i guess with c p s with her kids and I don't blame her for what she did and she she introduced uh, an undercover cop and he bought drugs from us for three months I, I really didn't have anything to do with them I was having somebody that uh i, I hate to use uh, the term work for me, but that was running errands for me, but you know when they write it up, he was working for me um but uh he he kept wanting more and more um uh, what was it? Uh, ecstasy, and so it was a, it was a ten thousand dollar drug deal, and uh, and so you know I wasn't I wasn't going to front that money, so I was bringing my other homeboy that I that I could get it from. I had a, a few thousand in a Crown Royal bag sitting in my lap, right off Trinity Mills at the racetrack, and I uh, um, he was having me check out this new some new speed. He said it was really good. I took a hit off the bowl, and I was like, yeah. We we're gonna have this guy uh, follow us. We didn't tell him what hotels. I wasn't, gonna, you know, it's kind of standard operating. When did I didn't tell him what hotel we were going to. Just follow us, and uh, you know, so that there couldn't be any setup. And um, as soon as he said, "Yeah, okay, cool, I'll follow you," and he went back to his car, and there was a there was a car horn, and uh, and then all fucking hell broke loose, man. There's, just, there's I think I counted thirteen cops, um, you know, and that was, um, yeah. That was uh, pretty intense.
0: Yeah. So, what went through your mind uh, when you decided, you know, for yourself that you were done using?
1: Yeah. So I was, uh, you know, I detox pretty hard in uh, with in Texas. It's uh, it's not a luxury. You know, it's they make you detox. uh, They give you Advil, you know, (laughs) or or that's about it. Um, You know, I didn't have the luxury of Suboxone or anything like that. So uh, the detox was pretty hard. I was really, you know, I wanted to be off of, you know, I'm having to shoot heroin in my neck, uh, and I'm not not happy about that. And I had stopped shooting speed long before, but I was smoking it occasionally just to stay awake, you know, didn't feel like that was much of a problem in my head at the time. But I, I wanted off those two. And uh, I think I was about a few months into uh into county jail waiting on they were shopping my case because it had been a three-month investigation on me um and uh so they were shopping it to the DEA and uh so it you know I I sat in county jail for a while and and somewhere in there uh you know I, I had I had been through the program many times I you know and tried to get clean throughout uh throughout my drug using history and so You know, my longest sprint, uh, you know, stint was I think eight months and about 97. So I knew about sobriety. I knew it was possible for some people. And and I thought, you know, this would be a good chance for it. But, you know, I never uh, never really thought I was going to be clean and sober. Of course, I thought I would, because that's just crazy sounding. I mean, why wouldn't I smoke weed or drink a little red wine? I never had a problem with that. You know, that's where my mentality was at the time and uh but it it took probably uh you know i got into meditation and mindfulness uh pretty early on um i re- i got put into um solitary confinement for fighting in county jail they called the shoe in Collin county and on my way in i i had, had a friend that was into spiritual stuff out there in the world and uh, he had talked to me about this Eckhart Tolle and in this book and there is one in the pod in uh, it was called the new earth and on my way in, uh, you know, it was my time to go do a month in the hole. Uh, they let you have a spiritual book, and I grabbed it off the table, and it says spiritual on the spine of it, you know, like in the spiritual section. And so I talked that boss into it. He said, yeah, okay, it's spiritual. So you couldn't have pleasure reading in there. but uh, So I read that for 23 hours a day, you know, um, really got into it. And at that moment, I, I really— I, I kind of made the decision I really wanted to do this spiritual growth, that whatever this Eckhart Tolle guy is talking about, there's something there. And I remember I wanted to do that. I, I wanted to know what this guy knew because the stuff he was saying uh, really started resonating with me. It was only resonating on a small level now that I look back over my growth, but it was enough that kind of put the hook in my mouth. And um, But it really wasn't about until I was a year uh and I think I was still, I come back on a bench and I was at the Middleton unit. We were rolling for chow, what they call rolling for chow. And I remember sliding off my bunk and I was having that internal conversation. And, and you know, one of the Buddhist precepts is this uh, no intoxicants. And, and, and I actually had that moment of realization. I had that commitment and said, well, if you're serious about this, why don't you tell yourself you'll never, why don't you say, why don't you do it? Why don't you never do drugs again? And I was like, "Okay, fuck it, I'm never gonna get high again. Fuck it." <laughs> and, I, and there was some kind of energy, like the you know, like the heavens parted or trumpets. You know, there was some little shift. I was like, "Fuck, did I just say and mean that?" You know, and I was like, "I guess I did," you know. Mm-hmm. And but I was already right at about a year uh, clean, you know. And uh, but you know, for for somebody like me, and I'm so grateful that what happened in prison happened, and that I had you know, that I got a 10 year sentence, uh, you know, um, because if i would have been out in just a year or two, I'm not sure I'd still be clean. I I, I needed time to, uh, from my head to rewire. I mean, I was literally on drugs day and night for, um, from 94 till 2009. Uh, you know, there's very few times I ran out of drugs. And so I was, I was a mess, you know, and uh, I, I didn't, I remember people would say shit like, uh, I'm enjoying a Coke. And I was like, the fuck are they talking about enjoying like you, you know if you use an adjective does that change the experience it's wet it's cold it's sweet you know I'm like what what do you mean enjoying like there was no sense of being no sense of depth it's really hard to explain how kind of they're just the bottom of the experience falls out when you're really burned out you know on on, on heart drugs and uh, so it took time for me to get my head back together if it's completely back together you know
0: uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm curious um, about really what spirituality means to you now, and how, how does it is it how you stay sober today? Is essentially what I'm asking, but also like clarifying what spirituality means to you, because I know that word is yeah. very uh, open to uh, subjective interpretation.
1: Yeah, yeah. Spirituality is one of those words I use uh, not as sparingly as I use the word God, but I, I just because I. Uh, You know, I I teach clients and I work with clients and I try to not stay in the mystical or the invisible, you know, because everything that people are talking about spiritual, there's usually a physical or an emotional, you know, or psychological component to it, you know, so I can point to something. So it's not so ethereal, you know, so but in the classic use of that word, you know, what do I do spiritually? Um, I meditate. I, I stay in a conscious contact as best I can, which is called mindfulness was something that's greater than self, you know, to put that in 12-step terms. You know, I try to stay connected to, to a state of consciousness that's not my own uh, cognitive processes as best I can. I bounce back and forth. I mean, I still have, a, uh, you know, a conditioned mind. I still have to drive a car, make a sandwich and stuff like that. So, uh, but yeah, to answer your question, I use, uh, I, I use a process a little bit eclectic, a little bit uh, of uh, the Buddhist Eightfold Path and uh, Advaita Vedanta, um, you know, principles. So uh, a couple Eastern approaches, um, and and I teach those with my with my clients uh, where I work and in my private practice. Um, you know, I I, I I export them in a very secular way because none of that has to be um, really has to take on any kind of religious um, flavor to it. The mindfulness is is ready for secular export just right out of the box, you know.
0: Yeah. So, um, with mindfulness, what was that? What did that process or progression look like for you from when you started to now? What What is it at its most basic level? If you were to explain it to somebody.
1: Wow. So, so I was introduced to mindfulness through books. I was introduced through you know through Eckhart Tolle's uh, you know, and the way he he never really uses the word mindfulness. You you may see him use it once or twice. He's pretty sparing with that. But, you know, and he uh, he uses it right off the bat when he's teaching you in uh, the power of now or um, a new earth. He calls it watching the thinker, you know, and wa- watching the thinker is uh, what I later learned when I got into Buddhism. Uh, you know, I, in prison, I, I wrote to a bunch of different Buddhist organizations, this thing called Project Clearlight out of the Styles unit in Galveston, Um had this thing, this uh, you know, a uh, chaplain there that was um, that you know had some Buddhist resources, and so all these different. Uh, I, I got to read a book. I was averaging probably one every three days for the four and a half years of calendar time that I served, and um, you know, I got into uh, uh, I got into mindfulness through that, through Tole, and then through uh, being exposed to all different schools and different flavors. Of Buddhism, and I would say, I mean, I think your question was, "Would like, what was it?" Help me clarify that question again.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just uh, what is mindfulness at its at its uh, very fundamental level?
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. So you know the 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 kind of the clinical, uh, like a John Kabat-Zinn definition would be paying, you know, attention in a particular way uh, to the present moment, and and it's a certain quality of attention. It's something we cultivate. In meditation, and then we, when we come off the cushion is where we we take the same skills from meditation uh, into our daily life of paying attention. And what we're doing is we're, we're paying attention not only to the present moment, but we're paying attention to the internal condition. You know, what Tully was calling watching the thinker, that's what the, the Buddha taught in the third foundation, in the what's called the Satipatthana. This is uh, mindfulness of mind. And we, we become mindful of not only the mind, but mental formations. And, you know, and, and through that and using a, a little bit of um, Advaita Vendata, we, we kind of start to, to see that it's, it's consciousness, it's awareness that's paying attention. It's not me. It's not Chris paying attention. You know, Chris is an idea. Chris is a body. Chris is this. But it's this unbroken chain of awareness that I've been all my life.
0: That's uh, that's interesting. So how is it you feel like that has helped
1: you with sobriety? Wow, how has that helped me with sobriety? Um, you know, so I, I, I teach uh, a method that, that involves uh, uh, supporting the 12 steps. So a lot of times when I'll talk about sobriety, um, I'll be talking about it, you know, talking about like using something that's being connected to something, a state of consciousness that's greater than my own thinking right and how does that help I can tell I had you know I'm eleven years in so sobriety is not really a pressing issue at the moment it's it's kind of fallen out of the repertoire or what you call out of my dopamine reward system uh, because it's it just hadn't been reinforced that much there's no there's no pull you know I can watch somebody shoot up in the movies and I don't cringe like I used to you know there's the there's not the internal pulls not there like it used to be Um but how, how can mindfulness help sobriety? Uh, I've got a lot to say about that. You want to hear that? Yeah. That- yeah. Oh. Okay. So uh, mindfulness doesn't really just help PRN, right? You just can't. It's not just a philosophy. It starts off as a philosophy that becomes experiential. And as it becomes experiential, it changes the way you see the world, man. It changes the way you feel. It gives you this superpower over your emotions. Um, but most importantly, before you even get to those stages, you know, what I what I work with with the the population I work with, an in inpatient, is I work with them on relapse prevention, right? And so we start with, you know, we have them meditate at least 45 minutes to an hour and a half every day in treatment. And we do guided meditation, really teach them how to meditate and teach them how to meditate with silent meditation. And we're trying to cultivate this space in this, you know, getting them to learn to identify with awareness and not the thinking mind. And so once you have that ability, then you can start. I mean, once that is kind of sufficient, then you can use this Buddhist technique that I'm really big on called brain, which is uh, recognize, allow, investigate and non-identify. And there's these three principles that allow us to uh, to come into the moment. You know, and, and to uh, to kind of seize up when, when a, uh, to, to put the brakes on a craving when it's happening, you know, because every every relapse is, uh, begins with the sober thought, you know, and, and really to explain this, I would need to kind of get into how addiction lives in our mind and, you know, and to really understand when you understand the neuroscience of how the dopamine reward system happens, you know, and, and then, and I'll just leave it at that. It's a dopamine reward system, right? And, and, and there's, there's these, um, these brain process, I guess you know, neural processes that happen. You know, when we take in a contextual cue, uh, either in our visual field, or we hear about something or a thought, you know, let's say it's, we see our old drug dealer pull into the Seven Eleven. boom, that's a cue. And we're like, Oh my God, you know, and then immediately you think, Oh, I got 20 bucks. Oh, I can, you know, the craving immediately starts because Um, The the striatum part, uh, this goal-seeking aspect of the limbic system just fires up. And uh, the unfortunate part about this is in an addict, the prefrontal cortex can't come in and mitigate it. The the synaptic pathways seem to be too robust or however you want to describe it uh, for the prefrontal cortex, for logic, you know, for the call your sponsor, for the you're going to lose your job, you know, common sense to come in. Uh, a normal person, their common sense could come in and, and mitigate this process. You know, for us, it, it doesn't. And uh, and so we use rain to be able to, you know, this constant returning to the breath, returning to the breath and being able to experientially occupy this space where you're watching the thoughts, you're watching the emotions, you're watching. So the moment you realize a craving is happening, you immediately drop into recognizing it, allowing the process with this open energy to to start unfolding and then investigate, investigate the clenching in the body or the excitement that this anticipatory dopamine just rushed into your head, uh, you know, in, in anticipation of the goal-seeking action that's happening. Um, so we do that, we investigate, then we investigate the, the bullshit in the brain, the, the justifications, you know, it's just one time, oh, nobody will know, all that, how that's, you know, how the, the mind is trying to clear out the pathway to get this goal obtained you know that that's so important because it's on the dopamine reward system which is there in all animals uh to keep us alive so you know ultimately in every diagnosis, knows this when we're craving it's it's like our life depends on it you know and so if we have the ability to drop back and watch that in a neutral position and allow the discomfort to be there and to and you know it's recognize allow investigate and non-identify and you know and if you have some type of quality of mindfulness you don't identify with it. You watch the body as it's hurting. You watch the mind as it's trying to convince you into this and you watch it and you watch it and poof, it disappears. It's just a, it's just a, a biochemical process. But if we don't have the skills of that, then it keeps hanging around. It stays up for negotiation. It's, we're thinking about it a lot, you know, but when we can drop back and watch the thinking process happen, and that's something we really cultivate um, through seated meditation. Hmm. What Does is uh, what is seated meditation? Seated meditation, right? Seated meditation. Um, so when I when I teach seated meditation, you know, meditation is a word that's really broad. Just like you said with spirituality, I, I often liken it to um, you know to jumping jacks or exercise, and so is bench pressing. Right? They're both exercise. Well, there's that many types of meditation. Um, And so we're really going for a specific type. And when I'm treating addiction, when I'm teaching people about this specifically for addiction, I am really concerned with them having the experience of realizing what consciousness is and, you know, and learning to identify with that, not with the voice in the head. Right. So the seated meditation I'll use, you know, in the very beginning, I'll, I'll use a little bit of the tools from Zazen, from Zen meditation of counting the breath, and, and then a little bit of the tools from uh, from Vipassana of, of, of feeling the senses and, and just knowing neurologically that when we're in the feeling of the senses, we're in task positive as far as neuroscience is concerned. The millisecond we come off of that, we're in the default mode network. So I'm really teaching the that population to really feel the breath, feel their butt being pulled into the cushion, pulling that incense into their belly, listening to the birds, watching the thoughts go by, you know, and, you know, and this is cultivating uh, this space experientially. You're actually, you know, you're not lost in what's called the default mode network, which classically in the East would be called the chatter mind, all these, you know, voices in our head. Um, So that's it. So, you know, I use that and those are kind of the training wheels and those come off after a bit of time uh, because of some of the work I've seen with Judson Brewer and some other wonderful people that, that uh, he actually does some meditation stuff inside of fMRIs where he's actually showing the data. And so we know that eventually we come off of the – I teach them to use the word feel on the in-breath and count on the out-breath. But eventually we drop that because those are kind of training wheels. And eventually you train your mind into knowing to, to stay connected to the senses
0: it's uh it's very interesting and I could definitely see how it um it would help with cravings cuz um you're talking about not identifying with your thoughts. So, you know, the cravings mm-hmm. are like a biological process in the brain. So, sure. what, from my understanding of what you're saying, you're observing that biology but you're not identifying with it. Um and it seems yeah. like this is a practice you carry throughout your life. It's not just something you do yeah. for addiction, but this almost seems like a lifestyle. Uh, what, what is the uh, problem with identifying with your thoughts and feelings and things of that nature like what ultimately yeah. d- does it cause
1: so yeah so you know i i will to sum it up real easy i either i call it we're either seeing it or we're being it I'm either able to see the thoughts as they're as they're passing by and they're experientially what that's like um, as far as the I guess you could say the character or the, the quality of that experience, it feels like there's space between me and my thoughts. I, I, I see them arising. When I'm not, when I slip into being identified with thoughts, I just am those. You know, oh, this sucks. And it soon I'm like, yo, this sucks, identify with that thought, and then there's a contraction in the body. Right, but if I'm being mindful and, and I meditated that morning, and I'm continually returning to the breath and staying connected, I see how something happens, and my mind wants to offer up, "Oh, that sucks." You're like, "Oh yeah, okay. Oh yeah, I can see the positive in that too." You know, I can see both of them I'm, I, from kind of a neutral perspective. So it, it kind of is like a superpower over, you know, I, I, I'm choosing w- which programs to to execute in the mind. I'm not just. You know, like sometimes they call, you know, being asleep or being identified with the mind, um, like being in a dream state. And it's very much akin to that, where you're just watching it happen. You're, it's just unfolding. You don't have any choice. It's all happening. But when you wake up or, you know, this awakening process, you seem to start watching it happen instead of it happening to you and you having to be involved in every emotional reaction. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And it's it's interesting because I've been, uh, you know, I I think it's crazy how much awareness has um, a factor in in what we think, feel, like where we place our awareness. So, you know, I I thought to myself once, if I won the lottery right now, I wouldn't be happy. But the second I'm aware of it, I would be happy. And now winning the lottery didn't go in and change the chemistry of my brain, it was my awareness that did. And it's the same with negative circumstances. Yeah. Um, so I think um, what I'm gathering from you is you're focusing on placing awareness on consciousness itself, like this unmovable force. And you do yeah. have that awareness of the mind, but you're not put, putting all your awareness in that. Instead, you have it in a more like sh- a place that can't really be shaken as much.
1: Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a, a great way of saying it. You know, the, we're real limited to words to to try to poke to this. You know this. Uh, this inner landscape uh, of experience, you know. So, you know, when I work with people, I I try all different types of words. I come at it from all different angles, Um, you know. But, yeah, uh, you know, in, in the 45 years that the Buddha taught, they said on a daily basis, he was asked what enlightenment or what this waking up process is, and he would never talk about it in the affirmative. He would only say it in the negative so that there wouldn't be a mistranslation. If he said it was peace, you'd go, "Oh, I know peace." Or if he said it's a banana, you go, "Oh, I know a banana." You know, so he would only say what it isn't, and he would say it's not suffering. You know, it's it's not suffering, and the word dukkha could be translated to dissatisfactory. Also, so you could say that life's not dissatisfactory. You know, at first maybe the experience of it seems like really neutral because there's not a lot of low lows and a, not a lot of high highs. But you're you're occupying kind of a, a vessel that can contain both of them. You know, you you can allow the pain to happen without identifying it and pushing away from it, and, and the pleasure to happen without grasping for it and worried that it'll leave. You know,
0: absolutely. I think it's cool that we're on a similar path, and um, I think you sure. know, in society in general, it's it's kind of like if you're you focus your awareness on the problem and, and the solution for that external problem. So it's like if I don't have enough money, the solution is to make more money. And I think like um, because I was solving – trying to solve things outside myself all the time and place my awareness outside of myself, when I kind of went down the path that you're talking about, I was Mm -hmm. scared of not being motivated because uh, to an extent, you learn how to be content and satisfied and it's like, okay, so how are you going to – but what I've learned is um, I don't have as much of a need to distract myself from the chaos So I've noticed that so much time and energy has been freed up, whereas before I'd be like, you know, as soon as I get home from work, it's like I don't want to think anymore. So I I, I would distract myself by watching movies. That's how Mm -hmm. I was able to stop thinking. Uh, And all those distractions added up to a lot of money and time. And I I just think it's interesting because even in in modern society, it's really – I mean you, I've heard things like you know find happiness within but I've never heard like a practical explanation you you know what I'm saying sure. and I think that yeah. this is a, not just the thing for drug addicts but this could be a thing that benefits everybody even with like this um, you know the pandemic that's going on it just seems sure. that a lot of people are really restless and uncomfortable with self and sure. that this practice sure. isn't really out there or taught like they don't teach this in high school or in college yeah. or in anywhere else yeah. you know it's kind of like finding a a pearl in a desert or like a hidden gem you know what i mean
1: yeah it, it, i agree with that i i always put i put sobriety as kind of a low bar and i put this in this enlightenment awakening goal as a really high bar you know because i i see a lot of people that are clean and sober that are miserable lost in their minds completely suffering but they're not using the the substance anymore but they're they're, they're constantly living in the head and and you know most people out there don't understand that there's, there's uh, you know, how identified they are with the movies in their head and how it's this most, you know, they say we have up to 50 or 70,000 thoughts a day, and it doesn't feel like that because we're identified with thinking. And, you know, even the, the most skillful mind person that has a mindfulness practice, it still has to drop into thinking all the time, you know, and, and thinking is so seductive and we just drop into and we're doing it all the time. And we're experiencing these little emotional responses from it. But you know one of the, 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 the signals I always tell my, my guys or girls to, to look for is any sense of discomfort or, or you know contraction in your body. that should be like the little light on your dash telling you immediately, check that out. Look at the thought and the, the belief that that's attached to, and you know reverse engineer it from there. But yeah, this is, this is a skill that changes your life for, for sure for sure.
0: Absolutely. And I imagine there's like, um, you know, it's almost like completely changing your way of living. So I imagine, you know, like for me, I imagine you have to be willing to hear it, you know, and and I feel like that's different for everybody. Where for me, I had to get so depressed by the way I was living before that I was so desperate for anything new. And I think that opened up my ears and my mind. um, Yeah, when I did hear something I could relate to. And that's like personally with the twelve step program, uh, that's what always just confused me was this higher power greater than self, and yeah. it, you know, yeah. in, it's in Western culture, it's like this power is is it can't be us, it can't be something. Right. That, I, I was right. it, it's it, it implied yeah. to look everywhere, but in within yourself. Yeah. When you and say that, that power greater than yourself, you're saying well, it's not yourself, it's not within you, it's <laughs> yeah. greater. Yeah, you get what I'm saying. Uh, I was just wondering yeah, what your yeah. thoughts on that are.
1: I, yeah I do and it's it's real contradictory there because when, you, when they say it can't be in your it can't be you it can't be in yourself well ask them where they're experiencing it or are they meeting their God in the backyard you know they're all meeting their God inside of themselves you know so what aspect and so if you don't understand what consciousness is and what the thinking mind or the conditioned mind the ego uh, you know the ego in the eastern sense not Freud's sense but if you don't understand what the ego is and what consciousness is it's all just you you know, and so I get real specific with clients and, and and we I lay down this this process, this psychoeducational process to help. You know, because if I just start getting them to meditate, the illusion is meditating. If I just start getting them to do mindfulness, the illusion is you know, being mindful. And so when you lay down a this educational component and kind of show them how You show them how the card trick works and it's no longer magic. And then they really start seeing the magic is everywhere. It's just a card trick of the mind. Really start seeing how the mind is actually, uh, you know, affecting their entire experience in life. So this greater than self thing, um, you know, I'm glad those words are put in there. And it's not just strictly a deity because I can work with greater than self, you know, because staying mindful or staying you know, connected with with uh, this state of consciousness is totally greater than self. But what they're talking about when they say they use these big ambiguous terms, you know, from back then almost has that King James feel to it. When they say greater than self, they're not talking about the self, you know, that can hold on tight to a vodka bottle or, you know, and they're not talking about a power that's strong enough to flip over your dope spoon. They're talking about that they needed some kind of power over their psychology that stopped them from self-destructing. They they swore they wouldn't drink on Monday, and, and they're drinking again by Tuesday night. You know, and they're like, fuck, I need some kind of power over this self-destruction. And so it would be this power over the mind. And if you look traditionally, it's used, uh, you know, with uh the way if you really break it down psychologically how the 12 steps are working and they work beautifully for so many people so i don't mean to be to be offensive to anybody that's in the 12 step program i consider myself a part of it i love the 12 step programs right but the one size doesn't fit all and the numbers bear that out uh the su- the successes are there the failures are so obvious you know the the, the 8 billion dollar a year industry we have in rehabs of just taken these people back through and through, trying to get them to do the same thing over and over and try harder and tell them they weren't connected. And we put it on this invisible spiritual condition. You know, so I get this to be very tangible. It's something they can grasp in their own experience. We're experiencing something that is greater than our own psychology. And if self isn't psychology, I don't know what it is. So this is ultimately this is the deepest part of us. I don't care. The holiest person on this planet is not getting deeper than his own conscious awareness. If they are, then explain to me how they're aware of it. Right. Awareness. Awareness is the first domino. We're not getting deeper than that. And so that's all we're connecting with. And then we're you know, we were awareness. Uh, you know, you could poke a little zygote or you could look on the sonogram that a fetus, you can see the fetus is aware of its fingers and stuff. We've been this unbroken chain of awareness all our lives. I watched my mom as she passed through Alzheimer's, and, you know, even though she wasn't aware who's in the, the hospital room, she's very, the lights are on. When she was trapped in her body and couldn't move, the lights were still on, you know, and we could see the emotional responses, you know, if she didn't like the jello or something. You know, the consciousness is who we are at our depths. It's just people aren't aware of that. It is greater than our own thinking and our own cognitive processes, what we could call self. So we are definitely connecting with something greater than self. Even though we're not wrapping a story around it or a concept, all those things are also self. Those are all of the mind. The story, you know, what we classically do in in, uh, the 12 steps is somebody comes in and they have this narrative, my life sucks and, and I get high to cope with it or I just get high... But they have this negative narrative and it you know, makes them feel like crap. And we're like, hey, bro, you know, God has a plan for you. and He's really got everybody in this room sober. He's going to get you sober. And all we want you to do is come to believe. Believe that. Because if you believe this narrative over this narrative, you're going to feel hope. And you're going to feel inspired. And that's the way it works. That's classic CBT. We're swapping out narratives to affect the way we feel. Right. So, And I understand that happens. that happens in all of us. Right? all we're doing is going to le- a level deeper that's prior to that and these are both true you know they they both let's put it this way they're both effective right this one can make you believe this one it can make you feel like crap you believe the positive narrative about the deity and, and and how your your life has a plan and that makes you feel good that's why everybody can make up a different God and as long as they believe they'll feel hopeful right and hopefully that part right there, Will suffice along with the sociological aspects, along with the house cleaning. There's a lot of good things the program has uh, to offer, you know, that help. But there's a lot of spots I I would say that that it's kind of uh, could use some improvement on, such as the cravings and stuff. Because we don't always, you know, when we go into like the the fifth and the the, the fourth and the fifth step, you know, we're learning to be a better person, then we make our amends later on, the eighth and ninth. You know, those are for being a better person so that the world deals with us better and and we don't have to cope. Right. And we could call that, um, you know, cleaning up the house. Right. But addiction doesn't only live through coping. Sometimes I, I get high when everything's great. You know, addiction lives in the dopamine reward system. You know, all I have to do is see a cue, an idea. And I want to get high because that's the way the brain works, you know, because it's it's a part of a normal functioning brain. The outcomes are extreme and the causes in our life are tragic. It's no less tragic than the classic disease model they call it. It's the exact same thing. But we know neurologically how this process happens, you know. And so, yeah, the, the part of the 12 steps is, you know, this connecting to a power that's greater than self I totally agree with that. I, I, I just feel a lot of people, you know, especially see this with the, a lot of the younger population. They have a hard time grasping that, you know, and they have a hard time connecting to it. They especially have a hard time connecting how this belief right now in this moment is not make. you know, how is that going to help me not want to shoot dope? Are you kidding? I'm supposed to believe this and not want to get high, you know, and... Yeah, I
0: get it. You know, I get it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting that you uh, you brought up that conception of self being um, your psychology, your mind. Because you know, yeah. like I always had this illusion of control over my mind because I could force myself to think about something. Like if I want to mm-hmm. think about YouTube, I could make myself do it. Or if I say somebody mm-hmm. said hey, say hello five times in your head in a row, I can make myself sure. do it. And in that sure. moment, I'm the voice in my head, and I'm the one who hears it. But when I sure. try to stop being the voice in my head, in other words, stop thinking and just hear, um, I realize that my mind is a—you uh, know—it would be a great servant, but it's a horrible master. And if I can't sit totally. there and not think for even an hour straight or even five minutes straight, if you if you were to tell me I'll give you thirty grand to not think <laughs> for like five minutes, that yeah. would be very hard. And to me, that that kind of—I um, get what you're saying here because that kind of makes uh, identification of what the self is a higher power is, is when the mind becomes a master, the psychology, because my mind is a fight or flight reflex machine. And when it's the master, it's always fighting or flying, you know, and it's always trying to protect me from things like the future that might not even happen. It's trying to, protect me from my past it's trying to process everything and it's non-stop and it keeps going and going and going and what you're saying is it's kind of like what i said earlier if i won the lottery once i'm aware of it it would make me happy so that awareness has the ability to at least get me in the process of trying to stop thinking or the process of observing my thoughts so at the end of the day the awareness is the greatest power it's like even when i lift my arm i'm aware so i could do it but it's just like seeing the brain as another limb and learning to have more control over it
1: yeah. I will say this, you know, I um the process is more like d- d- you know, becoming aware of thinking. You know, it's not that that I actually that we stop thinking, but there's some space between me and my thoughts and I can laugh at some of them. Whereas before when I'm identified, I am I'm, I'm not seeing it, right? I'm being it. And and you know, and if you really look closely, of course we all will I I know how I can direct my thinking. Of course we can all direct our thinking. But, you know, we're not actually choosing our thoughts and we're not choosing what's offered up. You know, if I were to say right now to pick a food and pick a car, you know, pick that food okay, pick that car. And notice, did you actually pick between every single car, you know, or did your brain offer you up the name of that auto like Toyota? You didn't actually choose between every make and model, you know. And when I say pick a food, you don't actually choose between everything. Your brain's continually offering you up thoughts without your choice. And then when you when you learn to meditate and focus attention, you start seeing how it's just talk. You're not choosing them. It says some of the craziest shit and some wonderful stuff, and you're just observing it. And you really, you know, this is a waking up to how each moment is actually unfolding for us. We're truly in this hypnotic state with the mind. And like you said, it's trying to emotionally prepare us for what might happen. And we're like, oh, this might happen. And we contract. And we have tra- all these little minor emotional responses throughout the day. you know, And, and it affects the way we feel, the way, the way we see the world.
0: Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I really uh, appreciate your time and uh, you sure. coming on and sharing this with us. Um, all right, well. Uh, you're, you're you could be found at uh Shanks Counseling. What is your website again? Yeah, it's
1: it's it's ShanksCounseling dot com. Okay. com. Uh, okay, and uh, are you are you uh planning on starting a channel yourself? Yes, I am. I'm. I'm just deciding. Uh, I'm. I'm gonna try to. Since I don't work with uh, clients, I'm. I might be doing some instructional stuff on Zoom if I get enough response for it. Uh, I've had a few people out of state, but I really only counsel people in Texas because uh, I do. Uh, you know, I have a full private practice, but I've always from the beginning I do it a hundred percent on smartphones. You know, it's all basically FaceTime through some HIPAA approved yeah. software. So. I might be doing that, some Zoom classes, but I'm definitely going to be putting, you know, what I work with uh, as far as uh, how I teach this educational component. I'm going to be putting that real soon on a uh, on uh, a YouTube channel here. Cool, that's
0: what's up. All right, it was it was great having
1: you. I'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks so much. Bye-bye.